Hi, this is Ron Darling with SNY TV. Um, you know me from covering the Mets, and uh, I hope you get a chance to listen to Mets Musings with Gary Mack. I had a great time. I hope you do, too. Mets Musings is an unofficial, independent podcast covering New York's National League Baseball team. It is not affiliated in any way with Major League Baseball or the New York Mets. This is Len and Jeff from Baseball and Barbecue. And the one place to go for New York Mets news, past week game reviews, upcoming series previews, interviews, analysis, opinion, and and what's going going down down on the farm. It's Mets Musings with Gary Mack. So keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. Mets Musings with Gary Mack. Now it's time for some New York Mets baseball talk. Here's Gary Mack bringing you the latest news and analysis from Mets Nation and the world of baseball on another edition of Mets Musings. And hello and welcome to another edition of Mets Musings. Hope you all had a great week out there. Got a very special show and it's a pretty long interview, so we're not going to talk a lot. Uh, Split the Subway Series. Got rained out Monday, went to a doubleheader, split that, took two out of three on the weekend against the Rockies, so not an overall bad week for the Metsies. So going to stay a little calm this week, but I want to get to my very special guest, and uh, it was just a terrific interview. I hope you'll enjoy it, and we'll get to that. Let's take a quick break. So our friends can be heard, and then we'll get right into the interview. Looking for great Cardinals talk? Then check out Conversations with C70. My name is Daniel Shopton, and I talk with some of the great bloggers on the Internet today about their teams. But it always goes back to the Cardinals. Find the latest episode on my website, www.cardinal70.com, or at baseballpodcast.net. Baseball and BBQ, your place for interesting baseball talk, opinions, and history. Baseball and BBQ, your place for barbecue recipes, tips, and interviews from the world of barbecue. If you like baseball and if you like barbecue, then tune in to Baseball and BBQ. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and BaseballTalkRadio.com, along with Mets Musings and other great baseball podcasts. With all the Mets news, it is the news from around the world and around the corner. Here's Gary Mack. I am so excited about my guest tonight. You know, uh, in in sports and in baseball, when you love a team, you have certain people that uh, become iconic, and they they may not be iconic to the whole baseball world. To that team, though, they are iconic and 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 legendary. And one of those guys is my guest is today, and he is Ron Swoboda of the 69 Mets, and Ron, welcome to Mets Musings. Hey, man, it's a great, it's a thrill for me, and uh, thanks for having me, Gary. Uh, Ron, can you believe that it's 50 years? (laughs) (laughs) 50 years is a little hard to get your your head around. You know, it's it's like you don't pass time, it just disappears, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you you're doing one thing, you're doing another, and then you look up and look back and you go, holy cow, it's been half a century. And uh, hard to believe, 
impossible to figure. It it just it just means we get an old. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. You know, when I'll be 75 uh, at the end of this month, June 30th, and we'll be, of course, up at City Field as the Mets are celebrating uh, the '69 championship team, and and that's going to be great fun. I'm 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 so grateful that I feel good and that I'm you know I'm anxious to get it get in there and have a little fun and. And uh, and do this 50th celebration because you know what <laughs> we ain't doing a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. Who knows? <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> you may not want to know, but you know. <laughs> well, we we hope you make it to the to a hundredth uh, as as well as everybody else. But you've got a new book just come out this week called "Here's the Catch." And a memoir of the Miracle Mets and more. And uh, take us through a little bit. Why did you decide to write the book now? And I think one thing that I found very interesting about the book is, folks, does, he hasn't he doesn't have a co-author. He wrote this himself. Well, I I um, you know I I was in the sports news media thing for 20 years. So you write your own copy. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that when people read this book, they read and hear the voice of Ron Swoboda coming out. Uh, I wrote it to try to sound like something I would say, you know, obviously you want to, then you can, you know, come up with sometimes off the top of your head, but, but at the same time, you want it to be that voice. And, and cause I felt, lucky to have experienced, uh, you know, this, this wonderful, you know, this wonderful thing that, that happened to me. Mm-hmm. Well, it, your voice does certainly come through in this book and, and it's really, uh, not just about the 69 season and the world series, but it's really a, a biography of your, your entire career and your life. Well, that was the, the hint we thought was uh, left by saying, um, you know, the Miracle Mets and more. Mm-hmm. I, I'd lived a pretty unconventional life, um, <laughs> uh, but my beginnings were were just idyllic in in Spires Point, where I grew up, hard by a, a large steel plant, and, uh, and you know, and and around people that are still friends of mine, and. My roots are down in a really beautiful area where where you never had undue, you know, uh, uh, burdens put on you of expectations. You just were expected to be a good person and do the right thing, <clears throat> and and that was that was the the ground that I that I came out of. And then, of course, you you end up in New York. Um, ahead of your time on the New York Mets with Casey Stengel and all this <laughs> wondrous stuff going on. And, and you're, you're really playing catch up with how to be a major league baseball player and, and adjust to a big city like New York, but you do it. And next thing you know, uh, your career is over in nine years and you're, you, you know, and you're at WCBS trying to act like a sportscaster uh, for which you've done no preparation you just have lived your life and 
try to keep your eyes open. And, and uh, the only thing that saves you maybe is that you know how to scuffle. And, yeah. and I'm going to scuffle, and you can slap me around a little bit, and I'm going to get back up and, um, and, and get back in the fray. And that, that's about, you know, and, uh, and I, would, I would say this. I am a flat, average intellect but I have a curiosity for things I don't know, and I know there is lots that I do not know. And I, I think that's, that's been kind of a, you know, the thing that's, that's sort of dragged me forward. You know, I'm, I love learning about stuff uh, and, and, uh, that I don't know about that, that's interesting, and I still have that going on 75. Well, you uh, you mentioned Casey Stengel, so let's talk a little bit about Casey. Yeah, Casey, yeah. Casey had a little problem with your last name, though. Yeah, Casey. Uh, Casey had some problems with a lot of people's <laughs> names. You know, uh, uh, Chris Canazero, a guy that caught for those early Met teams, was always Canzanari. Canzanari was a boxer, you know, but yeah. Casey transposed it. Um, there's there's a wonderful story that Joe Pignatano tells about when Joe was in the bullpen one time working the bullpen as a coach and uh, um, um, at, you know as he was a player but actually in the bullpen running running the bullpen of those early Met teams and Casey picked up the phone and and, and said get get Nelson up and 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 uh, Joe goes get Nelson up. There's no Nelson here, but he didn't say that. He said, okay, and he hung the phone up, and he said, Nelson, get up, you know. And, you know, uh, a pitcher who whose name was not Nelson got up, but he knew, the pitcher knew that Casey called him Nelson. He said, when did you change your name? He says, I didn't change my name. Casey did, you know. And so I was Sabota, you know, Sabota, get a bat. That's the way it rang out on opening day 1965. Sabota, get a bat. He never used a W, not ever. And and so, you know, here I am on a complete lark on a major league team at the age of 20. And Casey Stengel just told you on opening day against the Dodgers with Don Drysdale on the mound, get yourself a bat and get up there, kid. And and so you're you know your heart starts beating, and you're you you know you feel yourself sort of shaking a little, and you, but you walk up there like you own the world, you know, you yes. walk up there like this is, this is the thing that you've dreamed of doing your whole life, which it is, mm-hmm. but you're scared to death yeah. and you're trying not to look like it. And you're facing Don Drysdale who, you know, blows a fastball in there and, and you, uh, you, you know, I haven't seen it yet, you know, but it, it, it was strike one and I went, well, it sounded like a strike, but I've never seen it. And then he throws you another fastball that you try to swing at and you're a couple of beats behind that one. Yeah. And I remember the thought occurred to me, <laughs> the good news here is that <laughs> this doesn't seem like it's going to take very long. <laughs> so <laughs> the next pitch is a slider that I could actually see. And I hit a line drive to the second baseman, Jimmy Lefevre, who would be the rookie of the year in the National League in 65, and I'm out. But it was the best out I ever made in baseball. I'm going, you know, I took my right turn heading for the dugout going, wow, (laughs) I just hit a line drive off of Don Trisdale. I said, you can have the out. (laughs) 
So you you came up in '65, and uh, you avoided, unlike your buddy uh, Ed Cranepool, who <laughs> had to live through '63, '63, '62, '63, '64. Yes. Did you see things in the miners that were happening? Well, you didn't spend a lot of time in the miners. I didn't spend a whole lot of time. One one season, really, mm-hmm. and. That doesn't suggest that I was good enough to be in the big leagues. It just suggests that uh, I was in the big leagues uh, on a lark, complete lark. (laughs) Well, I thought you were untouchable, so that's not half bad. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, it it turned out to be an amazing first half, and and my time with Casey Stengel was, in, in terms of production and power, um, I, I hit 15 home runs in the first half of the year while Casey was managing that 65 team, and I never hit 15 home runs in any whole season uh, for anybody in the New York Mets or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of incredible, uh, the start. And, 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 and again, I was amazed. I mean, I'm wondering, you know, what... Why, what, where is all of this coming from? You're getting compared to Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle as rookies, and I'm like, man, this is, uh, <laughs> this is crazy, and, and, and I'm in the middle of it. Yeah. <laughs> and how was Casey, how was your relationship with Casey? You know, he was in his 70s at that time, and people said that he didn't really bother that much, but uh, well, again, your, your, your friend Ed Cranepool said that he was a big help to him. How was the Casey to you? I felt the same. I, I thought Casey knew exactly what it was like. He knew what you were as a player and what you were not. And and um, he knew you were in the big leagues on his roster, and if you could help him as a manager, he was going to put you out there. And, and, and Casey said to me one time, he said, you can't learn how to hit those guys out there sitting on the bench. And so, boom, you're in the game. And, 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 and I loved Casey Stengel. I was, you know, I, I know he was famous for Stengelese, which a lot of people think is just, you know, just babble. It's not. Within uh, some of his, uh, you know, verbal ramblings, there's all of these stories of, 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 uh, of players from, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Right. But there's points to the story. And, and, and if I was sitting there listening to him, I would hear lessons in those stories, almost like parables, mm-hmm. where you took something out of the story that could help you as a baseball player. While Casey is, you know, holding forth with, you know, his writers and whatnot, there were there were nuggets in there that you could extract if you listened, and I tried to listen. And and without a doubt, he, he you know, his record shows that uh, he was a great baseball man, Casey. Uh, I think he just got that reputation when he when he came to the Mets in '62. They they need absolutely. They needed- look. He knew what. He knew what his job was. He knew what he had his hands on with expansion team in 1962. Okay, there supposedly, you know, they lost 120 games, oh, yes. uh, and it, it it is still the gold standard for ineptitude at the major league level. And I hope it stays that way forever. I hope nobody eclipses that record because the Mets worked hard. To, to establish that record, or 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 as Casey told them um, uh, reportedly at the end of the season, um, 
all the guys together in the clubhouse. He says, I don't want anybody taking this personally. I want you all to remember it was a team effort. <laughs> 120 losses. <clears throat> so... I, I tell you, they were very entertaining, and they found new ways to lose. I was nine years old at the time, and uh, <laughs> uh, it, well, yeah. It was Think of this: <laughs> the National League was so deep in talent. You know, the National mm -hmm. League at that period of time was so much deeper in talent than the American League because of the Latino and African American players. Um, more of whom found found work in the National League. That's why there was that wonderful run where the National League won, you know, 19 out of 20 All-Star games. There's a reason for that. So, so the Mets, as an expansion team, where you picked up players that other teams didn't need, mm -hmm. is is essentially it. You know, sort of. Uh, has-beens and never-will-bes right. uh, for the most part. There were some good players in there. You know, Frank Thomas could hit. Um, you know, they, they, uh, they, had a, they had a few guys that were, you know, that were still major league quality players. But, but on the whole, you had a team that was, you know, you had a team that you wanted to see come to town. If you were, you were, you were in the big leagues in, in 1962, you wanted to play the New York Mets. Mm -hmm. You could, you could almost chalk up the W. Yeah. <laughs> and so now let's fast forward to 68 and uh change of regime. You played yep. for Casey, you played for West Western uh, and then, Gil Hodges comes in. Now, your relationship wasn't the best with Gil. Can you talk no. a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, I've tried over the years to figure it out, and, and the best I can do is this. Um, I've always had a little difficulty with authority. Um, if it comes at me uh, uh, the wrong way or, mm -hmm. or leans on me a little hard, um, and and for some reason, um, I I saw some of that in Gill, um, and 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 I sort of thought I knew how I wanted to be as a baseball player. I had just hit 280. I had my best season in '67, and and here comes Hodges, and you're going to play his way, or you're not going to play. And 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 I broached, you know, I I breached at some of that, and and and. It was all on me. Hodges was one of the most adroit major league minds I've ever been around. Um, he had such a quick brain and such a good feel for the game and, and for his players. And all he wanted you to do was, you know, act like a grown-up and be the best player you could be and, and help the Mets win games. And I couldn't always do that. You know, I just couldn't always do that. And and so he and I he and I had a fractious relationship, but it was really on me and my immaturity and and uh, uh you know, uh, I I hate the idea that that we didn't have as good a relationship as we should have had. And I'll tell you another thing. I in in writing my book I, I read a biography of Hodges where the guy found out Hodges during World War II, of course, was in the Marines. He was in an anti-aircraft battalion. And they were on, in 1945, they left the island of Tinian in the Marianas, 
they left in early March 1945 to head for Okinawa, which was a horrible series of battles, and Gil was involved in all of that in the Marines. My dad, who just passed away last April at 96, was a waste gunner in a B-29, and he and his crew landed on Tinian in the Marianas, where all those B-29s were stationed, Tinian, and then right across the way on Saipan. But my dad was on Tinian in late March 1945. Until the end of the war, my dad came home and lived in 96, but, uh, and an amazing guy. But I never knew until a few years back that uh, my dad and Gil Hodges were on the same island mm-hmm. in the Pacific during World War II, just not at the same time. Right, right. And I'm sure that that played a lot into his uh, stoic uh, nature. And yeah, uh, you know. he was he was a hard guy about some things. He was. A terrific guy, but he was he was an authoritarian figure in his mind, and 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 he was correct in feeling that way, you know. Um, and and you know, again, uh, any any problems we had, uh, uh, you know, in terms of relationship are on me, you know. And 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 um, I I to this day it it disturbs me that i couldn't figure out how to make it better and it wasn't like we were screaming at one another and all that i just found many ways to annoy him i just found <laughs> many ways to just <laughs> disturb him a little bit and and he always was you know and and then of course his reaction was you know uh, what's the matter with this guy but when i played and i produced he put me in there, and it was down the stretch in 1969 when I finally got a little something going. Mm-hmm. Um, Gil played me. I had made myself a better outfielder. He stopped putting in Rod Gasper as a defensive replacement. And in you know in the World Series, I got to hit against the sidearm right-hander and drove in the, <laughs> the, the, the go-ahead, the winning run in Game 5 of the World Series uh, when we put it away. He let me hit because I was hot. If you produced, you played. If you did not, you sat. And that was the rule. And he stuck to it. You know, a lot of these managers today say that that's the rule, but I have to tell you, sometimes it, 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 uh, and I don't want to, you know, badmouth anybody here, but uh, sometimes we, we scratch our heads with this new manager that the Mets have, uh, Mickey Calloway. Uh, but that's another discussion for another day. <laughs> yeah, well, look, if we can speak to analytics. Okay, because I'm doing AAA games here for the Baby Cakes in New Orleans. Um, I've seen analytics come into the game with the overshifts and uh, and the pie charts for defense and whatnot. Analytics is not irrelevant. It is there. There are nuggets of gold in the analytics, but I think the thing is. It should never replace a good manager with a good gut feel for his team and how guys are going. Because when you're going good, 
you're playing better than the average. If if all you're going on is is the analytics and 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 the average, okay, and you do that every time, you have to consider how a guy is swinging, how he's playing, how he's throwing, what's going on in his world. Um, if 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 you play guys, you know, you're looking for the hot hand, and that distorts the numbers in a way. It skews the numbers in a different direction when you're hot in the same way as when you're cold, when you're not hot. Uh, It skews the numbers downwards in a way, and the manager should react to that. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, the marriage between gut and analytics, to me, is is the golden path. That's that's the yellow brick road as far as I'm Mm -hmm. concerned. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think there's sometimes there's too much of uh, uh, leaning on the analytics. Well, we're, we're starting to see baseball with a lot of uh, analytics guys in the general manager's office, mm-hmm. and they're not baseball players. Right. And and they need to. I think they need to come. You know, one another's way. I. You know, I'm 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 not happy about. You know, you can't slide hard into second base. You know, you can't go hard into a catcher. You know, those things that people would remember when they leave the stadium, you know, big physical plays that maybe changed the game mm-hmm. and people remember them forever. You've, you've taken that out of baseball and baseball's not better because of it. Not at all. And, and you have played with some physical guys and guys that would take advantage and against uh, one of the guys. Sure, the book, uh, sure. And they expected it. You know, second baseman or shortstop coming across that bag for a double play, he better know where that runner is. And you went in there, you weren't trying to hurt him. You were just trying to run into him. You know, you were trying to disturb the double play. You know, breaking up a double play is a big play. It was always a big play. And, and, you know, um, and that second baseman uh, had to think about how he wanted to come across that, that base and make that play. And that was a skill that second baseman and shortstops had to spend a lot of time thinking about. Mm-hmm. Today's game, you don't think about that anymore. You don't have to because that guy's not going to, you know, yeah. he's not going to run into you. He's not going to touch you. And everything now is they, they take uh, the middle infielders take uh, on a tag play at second. They're taking the ball in front of the bag. They're standing behind the bag on a, on a double play. It's just I I don't get it. Yeah, it's it's not look. It is not improving the game. No, the game the game had uh, you know, and I I know they're trying to protect expensive ball players from injury, but you know what? Uh, you can't protect everybody from everything. These guys get hurt just falling down now, you know, and because they're so highly tuned, they're better trained athletes maybe overall than we were but they're also a little fragile in some ways because they've tuned up their bodies with all the core work and yes. weight work they do and and you know there there's give and take from that guys maybe are better players when they're healthy and up and playing but they're also you know more injury prone right. and uh you know because they're not you know they they can't take a hit I, I say this all the time. They're in too good a shape, I think. They're, well, there is such a thing. And, yeah. and uh, when we played, we, we never went near a weight room, and we were more flexible. I think we were less developed physically than these guys because we didn't do all of that. Stuff. We did some of it, but we didn't do as much. And there is such a thing 
as overtraining. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, you were a phys ed major, so you know that. You know, <laughs> I would have done more weight work if I had been smart enough, uh, but not too much. A little bit more would have helped because it had it, 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 it. I think it's made some marginally developed guys into better players. Mm-hmm. Honestly, yeah, yeah. Um, guys, you know, uh, up in your strength, keeping your strength at a higher level. Um, um, you know, uh, avoiding some of the ebbs and flows of your, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, a bio, uh, you know, your your development and, and whatnot, you know. Um, uh, I, I think a little bit more would have been good, but I think today um, um, it's it's more over the top. Now, let's go back to the summer of 69. And, yes. Uh, what a what a... As a 16-year-old kid in the summer of 69, it was quite uh, a wonderful year. I mean, I know it had its bad side with the Vietnam War and the protests. Yep. But when, when and anti-war was anti-war, huge, yes. you know, and, and, and identity politics and civil rights hadn't gone away mm-hmm. with... Uh, you know, the murder of Martin Luther King the year before and Robert Kennedy, um, it was still a pretty fractious time. The uh, Stonewall Inn riots in uh, New York City in, in 1969 uh, heightened this sort of gay awareness. Uh, um, it was, um, it, you know, it was an interesting time uh, 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 in, in so many ways. And And right in the middle of it with three major events that, really changed history uh of course man walked on the moon in july yep uh, woodstock and the 69 yep. mets i mean it was something that brought people together in that fractious time and uh really for it to happen in one year was just one summer actually well uh, i remember where we were when uh neil armstrong stepped out of that lunar lander and 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 started leaving footprints on the moon. Uh we were in Montreal. We had finished the first half of the season. We were scheduled to fly back to New York, but our United Charter had a mechanical problem. So while they were fixing our aircraft, we went upstairs to the uh, cocktail lounge in the uh, Montreal airport. And that's where we watched Neil Armstrong take his small step for man, giant leap for mankind. And and the irony wasn't lost on us. You know, here here we can't get from Montreal to New York, <laughs> and a guy is walking on the moon, you know? And, and we were clicking glasses, and it was a heady time, and we watched yeah. it live on TV. Oh, it blew yeah. us away. Yeah. I mean, it, as it had a... <laughs> affect anyone who was looking at it live what an incredible human accomplishment and i was a big nasa guy mm-hmm. uh, uh, space flight and rocketry and all of that i was into that stuff because it dazzled me as a kid when they started talking about sending men up into space right. in multi-staged rockets and uh, maybe going to the moon someday or, or putting up satellites around the Earth and all. That stuff fascinated me as a kid, and I read, I read a lot of stuff on it, you know. Um, 
it was it was an incredible time. Robert Lay, L-E-Y, wrote a book on not science fiction, but the science of of projecting what we knew about rocketry and uh, um, and and wrote a book on you know like rockets, spaceships, and out of you know outer space and all that stuff. He wrote a you know illustrated book on all of that, and I I ate that up as a kid. Um, Lay lived in New York and passed away not far from Shea Stadium. Um, he was a German immigrant and and came to America. And and of course uh, the uh, you know the guy that designed and and made possible the moon flight the Saturn V rocket was developed by you know von Braun mm-hmm. and and he was he was a Nazi through and through oh, yeah, you know yeah. and and um, uh, SS and 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 uh, but he was also an engineer who knew how to build multi-engine rockets and without him without his expertise. We don't go to the moon. So what an incredible, you know, connection uh, all of that was making. Yeah, and and it and it's always going to be there. You'll always be tied to that and uh uh it's not half a bad thing to be tied to. But in that season everything seemed uh that summer especially not so much in the start of the season, but that summer into the end of the year everything seemed to go right for the for the Mets. Uh, every yes. bounce went your way. Every close game, y- you had a fantastic pitching staff, uh, and and we had a great record in one-run games, and mm-hmm. that was one of the things Hodges talked about the year before. But you know, we 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 were the master of of the one-run game because mm-hmm. of that pitching, and and we were a pretty good defensive team, um, and and uh, I think those two things contributed to that and you're right so many things happened for us um um that you you know you you know the definition of a miracle is is that it probably doesn't make complete and perfect sense okay (laughs) (laughs) otherwise it's not a miracle well it was a wondrous summer and i was fortunate enough to be there on september 24th when the uh, Mets won the NL East title, um, yep. as I said, I was 16, and my father said it was a school night, and he said when the third out was made, he said, uh, we lived in Queens at the time, he says, let's go. But, Dad, I want to <laughs> watch the celebrate. Let's go. <laughs> we, <laughs> Isn't that great? We oh, that's to- awesome. That <laughs> is awesome. Ran to the subway and got home, and I did get to see the celebration <laughs> on TV. So uh, uh, I did miss it. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the other thing, as you said, everything happened in Shea Stadium. Yes. All our all our champagne parties from from clinching the division, winning the National League, winning the World Series, all happened in Shea. So we got the champagne party down to a science. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you win the East. You go on to play Atlanta. Uh, you didn't see a lot of action in that series uh, because I got on deck one time, Gary. That was okay. that was about as much action as I saw. I was um, I was a pinch hitter um, with two outs, and I, I I never got to hit. So I, I got a what we call a scare. Yeah. <laughs> now uh, the World Series. What what did it feel like? 
when you uh, were playing essentially your hometown team, a team you grew up with? Uh, yes. Uh, what was your feelings as that was taking place? You know, I remember walking onto the field in um, in, in Memorial Stadium um, and and going out to right field. I had played games there as an amateur. I had worked out with the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, I was an Oriole fan, and and uh, as a kid, and, and and here we were squaring off with these guys for all the marbles and. You run out the right field, and you feel so strange because there is all of this stuff boiling on the inside, and there's that little kid that grew up in Baltimore that loved the Orioles that um, couldn't believe he was out there in the outfield in his first-ever World Series game, and you're nervous as hell. I'm nervous as hell. And the first ball from Don Buford is a fly ball to right field that i got to get back on and try to make what would have been a pretty good catch, but it was, to, to my way of thinking, and the work I had put in to become a better outfielder, it was an extremely catchable ball that I let get over the fence because right. I'm so damn nervous, and, and I don't get back on it in good time. I make every mistake you can make and I leap and I miss it and it's a home run. And here's Buford walking around the bases, you know, and, and, and he goes by Bud Harrelson and, and, and Buddy told me one time, he said, Buford went by him and, and you know, out of the side of his mouth, he goes, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what? wow. And, and Buddy never said anything about that until much later. You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> well, he was, well right, he was right, but not for the reasons he thought. <laughs> and uh, uh, in that series, you hit 400 and, uh, of course, made the catch that's still, you know, talked about to this day. Uh, some say it's the greatest catch in World Series history. Uh, it came on the heels of two other catches in that series. Uh, like you said, guys played some pretty good defense with uh, A.G. Well, Tommy A.G. makes two plays the day before in a game that, um, you know, he, he makes a running catch in left center. He came from right center to left center. He made a catch in right center. He came from left center to right center and made two great plays with five guys on base and two outs. So he saved five runs. You're telling me that doesn't turn a game around. Um, and, and both of them were tremendous efforts where he covered incredible amounts of ground. And, and I always look at that and go, well, he changed that one. And, and then my catch at the you know absolute fulcrum point in that game and in the World Series, in game four, we're up two games to one. We're leading one nothing. Seaver's in a little trouble with runners at first and third and one out. And, you know, Brooksy hits this line drive that, you know, I just break on it. I had worked at that. Uh, Eddie Yost hit me thousands of line drives and ground balls, and I had learned to read the ball off the bat pretty good. But the degree of difficulty on that catch and the fact that I got there in full layout on my backhand the degree of difficulty there is ridiculous. You're not going to make that catch very often. But I wasn't thinking about that. I was doing what Joe Pignatano said to me one time. He said, Swoboda, don't think. You'll only hurt the team. 
<laughs> I wasn't thinking. I was just reacting. And, you know, when I look at the play now, I go, good God almighty. <laughs> what were you thinking? Well, I wasn't thinking anything. I was thinking ball, get to it, go, and do what you need to do to get there. And that was that was what happened in that moment. If it gets by me, um, you know, if Boog Powell doesn't score from first base, he's at least at third with one out and second and third. And we're in trouble against the Orioles because if they come back and win that game, they even the series at two. And 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 guarantee that they're going back to Baltimore. Right. And by us winning that game and going up three games to one, we have a chance to keep that from happening, which we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, is it true that you would study? You mentioned how hard you worked in the outfield. But I also yes. read somewhere that you studied outfielders and watched their moves to try to get... Well, I had to figure out something. You know, when an outfielder breaks left or right, just like a base runner running the bases, your first move should be a crossover step. Mm-hmm. Because you make that crossover move, rather than just pick up that outside foot and turn, the difference is about two feet, two and a half feet. That's a lot of distance in the same amount of time. That first jump, that first beat of your pursuit is so critical. And, and I watched Kurt Flood, and I, I, kept, I couldn't make myself do the crossover. And I watched Kurt Flood one day, and he was one of the great outfielders. He, he played deep. And he got everything in the gaps. And I watched him in batting practice, and I noticed he was shifting his weight over that outside foot either way during batting practice. He didn't run and chase the balls, but he was shifting his weight. And I went, what is he doing? And I did it. I practiced it, and I went, I see what he's doing. Here's the deal. What you learn is your, your feet follow your weight not the other way around. You move your weight in the direction you want to go. You put weight on that outside foot, you won't pick it up. You will make a crossover step automatically and make the right move if you move your weight. You commit your weight first in the direction you want to go. And that was revelatory to me as an outfielder. And that made me so much better and and my jumps on the ball so much better you get the things easier right and 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 i learned it from kurt flood nope. not a bad guy to learn from <laughs> yeah no um who, who yeah who was you know who was a great outfielder a if outfielder. it stayed in the ballpark and kurt flood was in center field he probably caught it right <laughs> So now, when when you made that catch and of course the tumble and you came up throwing, did you have any idea the importance that that catch was going to have at that time? Or nah, uh, you knew it was a great catch. Mm-hmm. Okay, I knew I made one hell of a catch. Period. We were so into the game. I mean, people have asked me, did you save that ball? I said, save the ball. And it was a sacrifice fly. I was throwing it home. That's right. So it went out of my hands. And, um, you know, and, and if, you, if you listen to the play-by-play, Lindsey Nelson working with Kurt Gowdy, but I think Lindsey Nelson made the call. 
it looks like, you know, hey, another outstanding play by Ron Swoboda. You know, they move right past it because the game is on (laughs) and things are not decided. We're tied, (laughs) you know. The game is on. And and so that's where my head was. We had a little more baseball to play. Right, right. Fortunately, we... um, you know, we try to bunt a guy over from second and third in, um, in, in, in the bottom of extra innings, and, and they throw the ball away. The Orioles throw it. It skims off of J.C. Martin and heads into right field, and we just win it, you know. And uh, that was huge because it was a walk-off at that point, and uh, we're up three games to one. And we go to game five, and uh... – Team and more miracles happen because we're <laughs> down in the game. You know, Kuz, uh, you know, Kuzi's out there, and uh, he got in a little trouble early and gave up some runs. And and I remember Kuzman coming into the bench and going, "Give me some runs, boys, because these guys ain't scoring no more." <laughs> and he shut. Them and that's down. what happened. <laughs> and and of course, the famous uh, shoe polish incident with Cleon Jones. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and Kuzman swears that he rubbed that ball on his shoe and gave it back to Hodges. And, you know, who's to say that did not happen? That's right. <laughs> and then and then the ball on, you know, the, the, the ball that, um, you know, they ruled, um, they ruled that, you know, Cleon, uh, you know, uh, was hit, you know. And then Frank Robinson, Kuzman threw a ball in on Frank Robinson that hit him. And and they called it a strike, you know, and and um, uh, uh, instead of, of of him going to first base in a situation where the Orioles could have had something going, so those two calls were huge in in a game that mattered. Mm-hmm. And then of course you drive in the winning run, and uh, you're up. It's the night. Well, he let me hit against a you know sort of three quarter arm side arm relief pitcher, Eddie Watt, right-hander. He's got Shamsky on the bench. He could have pinch hit for me there, but I was hot. And 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 Hodges always went with hot. Mm-hmm. And you get the hit, and, of course, we, we, we go to the ninth then, and it's two outs. Cleon Jones catches the last yep. out. And uh, now – I heard Cleon Jones say one time that you guys had a plan that you were heading for the right field bullpen, but yet in your book you say you, you, you made a beeline for the dugout. Yeah, I ran to the dugout. I, I felt like um, I got my hat in my hand and my glove on my glove hand, and I, I grabbed my hat because I knew people were going to be on the field and trying to grab that stuff. Yeah. And, and we had done that before, mm-hmm. you know, so it was uh, – it was a little frightening because you wanted to get off the field because folks' eyes were big as saucers. Right. They were, you know, in total bliss mode, but they were looking to grab things and take your hat and take your glove and everything. You know, people were grabbing all over you, and you were running through them. You didn't want to blast anybody, but you wanted to get the heck off the field <laughs> and into the tunnel, and that's, that's what we eventually did. Now, any idea or recollection – how Tommy Agee or Cleon got off of the field. Because Cleon, I, I read somewhere that Cleon says he hopped the wall. He was trying to get to the right field. Uh, 
to the to the to the uh, yeah i don't know i i tell you i don't know i i was trying to get me off the field and um you know you you were kind of in your own world i don't know i don't know what cleon and them did i thought they came through the bullpen but uh because they were further away, you right, know, right. and the closest exit to them was the um, was that um, bullpen fence that opened up to let mm-hmm. the relief pitchers out. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know so, I, where, where I read that that Cleon City scaled the wall and went over, and then I guess maybe he did. Bullpen, um, but... Because I'm going to tell you something. I I don't see you know when you see that wide shot. I can see myself with my hat off in my hand, and I'm heading towards the right field line and the near near corner of the dugout, which right. is where the you know the walkway to the tunnel was mm-hmm. uh, up to the clubhouse. And there's a guy coming out of the right field stands who has jumped, and he was caught mid-flight, and that's a long fall. And this guy has let go of the railing. And he is coming down onto the field. And I always wonder, when my eyes always go right to that guy in right field against the high wall, and how, wonder what happened to him. Yeah, because yeah. he's falling a long way. Yeah, that was a long drop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That wide shot is, is fun to look at, yeah. at what's going on with everybody. <laughs> And uh, quite a celebration. You you get the uh, ticket tape parade. Uh, you go on the Ed Sullivan show. You cut a record. I mean, quite a heady. Thing. It all happens pretty fast. <laughs> but the ticker tape down Broadway with you know all of the trash coming out of the windows and a smile on everybody's face. That that was amazing. All of those celebrations of it, where you felt like in pretty fractious times. You gave everybody in New York something to take their mind off it and something they could all agree on, that this was, this was an amazing thing and enjoy it. Enjoy it. Um, we've talked about the season. We, we, we talked about the, some of the guys you played with, but let, let's talk about a couple. Uh, you were good friends with the late Tug McGraw. Uh, talk about Tug a little bit. Tug was one of my favorite guys and always will be and uh, did not make the earth a better place when he went away, uh, period. He had a heart as big as a ballpark. And, you know, there weren't too many guys that could, you know, leave the mound after one of his saves, which were always fraught with with possibility. <laughs> with You know, it didn't seem like he could get the last out until he had a couple of guys on base. He did it for us. He did it for the Phillies. Mm-hmm. Um, he was incredible in those moments. Um, and and um, I I just loved the guy. Uh, Eddie Cranepool was your roommate for a number of the years on the oh, road. Oh, Crane was New York. You know, when I let the ball get over the fence, the first out in the game, I came in the dugout and I'm running my mouth about, I should have caught it, I should have caught it. And Crane says, shut the F up and <laughs> get the next one. You know, he gave me a little New York, uh, you know, bedside. Eh, shut up. Get the next one. You know, that's Eddie. That's Eddie's a tough guy, and I'm gonna tell you something. This this whole thing he's gone through with a new kidney, and he is doing great. Eddie was a tough guy when he needed that kidney, and it's going bad. 
you never heard him complain. He just moves on. And and I'm I'm so happy for him. This is a new lease on his life, you know, with mm-hmm. with a new kidney and he's 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 in good shape. I saw him just a few days ago in Somerville, New Jersey. Um tickled pink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I uh had the pleasure of running into him in a couple of book signings that he was at and um before the kidney and you know he was in really pretty good shape at that point and really so low key about the whole thing uh no he just moves on eddie yeah. just moves on you know and and i'm afraid i'm getting to a point in time here where i might have to move on um i've i've, I've got someone who's going to be calling me in uh, about five minutes. Oh, okay. Uh, That's fine. So I just wanted to let you know. Yeah. I apologize oh, yeah. for that, but uh, we're just we're running up against it a little bit. Quick thing on, on Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman. Uh, you have those two guys. You're not going to have too many um, uh, extended losing streaks. Um, to me, Kuzman was a warrior, and uh, the guy you wanted following Seaver – Kuzman always seemed to get the other team's ace and handled it. And Tom Seaver, uh, bless his soul, man, we're so sorry that he can't be there because of his dementia and 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 what he's going through. Because Tom Seaver was Hall of Fame the minute he showed up in the big leagues. There wasn't any break-in period for Tom Seaver. He was the same guy with the same stuff, the same confidence, the same ability from day one. All he needed was the time to accumulate the incredible numbers he accumulated to become Hall of Fame. But he was the same pitcher from day one. Mm, what a shame uh, that he yep. won't be there. Yep. But you'll be there, and he'll be there in memory. Uh, Ron, I want to thank you so much. Uh, yes. Uh, Gary, you're you're very welcome. Thank you. Any book signings in the New York area this uh, Yes. Um, on the 26th. Of um, of June, I will be um, uh, out at uh, book review um, in uh, Huntington, Long Island, okay. and then in Ridgewood, New Jersey, um, at a big bookstore in Ridgewood on uh, July the first uh, in the evening. So uh, be heads up for those. And then on the second, there's a there's a public signing at uh, City Field on on July second okay. at five thirty at That's City great. Field, um, June June uh, I mean July second. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope to see. So you it's going to be a busy period. I hope to see you on the twenty sixth in Huntington. I'll introduce. Please you to you. look forward to it. And good luck with the book. It's here's the catch: a memoir of the Miracle Mets and more. It's Ron Swoboda and Ron. Thanks so much for coming on. I loved it. Thank you. All right, and I'll be back right right after this. Hey, baseball fans and book fans as well. This is Frank Nappy, author of the Legend of Mickey Tussler series, inviting all of you to learn more about my protagonist, Mickey Tussler, an incredible pitching prodigy who has autism. Follow Mickey's journey as he captures the hearts of fans everywhere with his blazing fastball and indomitable spirit. Please visit Amazon or www.franknappy.com for more information. Hi, this is the world-famous Mr. Brewtown of BrewtownSports.Potomatic.com. You know, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, Plus. Uh, Brewtown Sports. You can also listen to the show at Stitcher.com, TuneIn.com, and iTunes.com. 
and we've got the new one. It's called BrewtownRadio.Webley.com, but the one that I'm most proud of being on is BaseballPodcast.net. It is the home of great baseball talk shows. Check it out, my show and all kinds of other programs all about Major League Baseball. So check it out. That's BaseballPodcast.net, the home for great baseball talk shows. 516-619-6341. That is the comment voicemail hotline if you'd like to be a part of the show and drop us a line leave us a comment or a voicemail question anything at all call that number 516-619-6341 or go to metsmusings.com and click on that widget in the middle of the screen and that's a speak pipe and you can leave a voicemail right through your computer through your computer's microphone or if you prefer to do things the old-fashioned way, send us an email at metsmusings at gmail.com. The Facebook page is facebook.com slash groups slash metsmusings. And the Twitter handle is at metsmusings1. And uh, if you'd uh, like to help out the show, check out our Patreon page. Check out the campaign at patreon.com slash metsmusings. That's going to wrap it up for this week's show. What a great show. What a great guest. Had such a good time with Ron Swoboda. I'm telling you, folks, go out and catch the book. The, the book is uh, an excellent book written by Ron. So go check that out. And it's Here's to Catch, a memoir of the Miracle Mets and more. And uh, he'll be at the book review uh, in Huntington on June 26th at 7 p.m. And go look on the websites. You'll you'll find them uh, in the tri-state area. So uh, go check it out. Go pick up the book. Here's the catch by Ron Swoboda. And I want to thank Ron so much for giving his time and, and uh, really went beyond uh, what he was supposed to be on. And we just started talking. That's what happens sometimes. And I want to thank you for listening. And I'd like you, uh, if you could do me a favor, to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen or watch it on iTunes, YouTube. If you watch the video, please subscribe. We want to build that subscription base. Uh, Spotify, YouTube, I said, wherever you listen or watch the podcast, hit that subscribe button. It helps me grow the podcast and uh, get more listeners. And, and also, I hope you'll check out my other YouTube channel, Talking Golf with Gary. It's a golf podcast that I do on a weekly basis. And I hope you go and subscribe to that on YouTube as well as listen to it. Uh, it's available at TalkingGolfWithGary.com. So I guess I hope that you'll check that out as well. Uh, busy week. Busy couple weeks coming up from the Mets. Got some tough series coming up. Got the Cardinals coming into town for the weekend. And they're going to be playing, I think the Dodgers, somebody, uh, I don't have the schedule in front of me and my mind went blank. So, uh, but a tough series, got the Dodgers, I think the Brewers coming up soon. Uh, we'll see where this team is going, whether they should be buyers or sellers. I still think they should be sellers, but 
maybe they can right the ship. Anyway, until next time, remember to keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. See you next time on another edition of Mets Music.